You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. Over the last three episodes, we've been focused on bikes in wilderness within the United States. And although the people, places, and policies are specific to the United States, the concept that is wilderness is global. And over the next couple of episodes, we'll be discussing the theme of wilderness, but outside of the United States. We'll also be hearing feedback concerning the wilderness debate itself within the United States. I'm your host, Brent Hillier, and this is episode 28 of Frontlines. My guest is Nahid Henderson. She's the Director of Communications and Development at Tyax Adventures. Hi, Nahid. Welcome to the show. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm good, Brent. How are you? Excellent. Before we get started, I'd like to play some audio from the video that Tyax just produced called Respect, a Call to Action for Sustainable Mountain Biking. Just the opening dialogue from from the video, I think, really resonates, and I just want to play that right now. Keep your eyes wide open and your ears wide open, too. And beware of what's around you at all times. This area is very important to us. Treat it like you're in our home, because it is our home. Welcome. Who is that speaking? Yeah, that person speaking is William Alexander, who is a member of council for the Shalaf community in the Statlium Nation. And they're based out of Seton Portage. And essentially, we operate, our whole operation is in their traditional territories, their hunting and gathering grounds. It's, it's... I think it really, it's on point, you know, it, it really encapsulates what this whole discussion is really about and, and, and how we are all included in this, in this piece of landscape. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think the idea that he speaks, that William speaks to in that is the idea that it's our home and we need to take care of it like we would take care of our home. And if we don't, there's really not a lot of opportunity for us to be there in the future. And that's a message that has to get out through all the user groups, but, and mountain bikers is one of the large user groups in our area. So for those who aren't familiar, where are the Chilcotins, and, and can you just describe for us what it's like to be there? So we operate in the South Chilcotin Mountains Park and the Big Creek Provincial Park, and they're provincial parks. Uh, they're in BC. They're kind of just at the northern end of the Sea to Sky Corridor. Small historic towns such as Braylon or Goldbridge are at our southern boundary. And then the Chilcotin actually stand, extend quite a ways north. So they're quite a large mountain area. But we, again, operate in the southern end of it. You know, the South Chilcotin, I think, are quite unique in that uh, they're one of the, the southernmost vast, uninterrupted, untrammeled areas of wilderness. They are easily, fairly easily accessible for a large population, but still remain vast, which make them quite unique. They're also considered somewhat arid for the BC coastal area. So you'll see lots of high plateau, lots of rocky areas, but a fairly arid, arid environment for this area. 
they're also really interesting because I had a conversation with somebody recently and it was brought up that, you know, we do kind of exist still in cowboy country there. It's an area that's been um, for hundreds of years and generations for the First Nations been used as ranch lands. And as the area continues to evolve and how it's used, those challenges will change. But it's a heavily used ranching area, recreation area, um, and then First Nations territories. And as a result, also, all of the trails that we currently use are are quite different in that they're all historic trails. And so they haven't been created necessarily for recreation or for mountain bikers, but uh, they are trails that pre-existed uh, for uses such as horse travel, um, First Nations traditional routes, and uh, mining and other resource extraction. And and I definitely want to dive into the the varying user groups that are in that area. But before that, just what is Tyax Adventures? Uh, what do they do? Yeah, Tyax Adventures is a adventure company that offers backcountry adventures in the South Chilcotin uh, Mountains. The company's been around for about 19 years. It was started by Dale Douglas and his family and really started from Dale's passion for flying and mountain biking, as well as just being in the wilderness and playing with friends. And he kind of started it as a way to get his buddies out into the woods and play with them and combine his plane and his bike with them. Um, and it's slowly organically grown into um, a very humble but large uh, outfitter. It's a multi-use operation, so we it's mountain biking, horseback riding, hiking, as well as flight scene and flight charters. We see about 2,000 guests a year, which is quite a large number of guests considering we operate for about three and a half months every year. And I'd say, you know, Tykes Adventures is really a pioneer in the global world of multi-day backcountry mountain bike uh, and horse adventures. And that when you go on an adventure with Tykes Adventures, you can spend up to seven days, you know, an average might be three or four days in, in the wilderness could get dropped by an airplane, a float plane, and then you can travel from camp to camp or cabin to cabin um, for multiple days experiencing different trails and mountain passes and such. So the the last few episodes of the podcast, we've been discussing bikes in in wilderness and and wilderness in the U.S. and wilderness with a, with a, a capital W, as as one of my guests has has put it. And in your opinion, can can bikes and and other user groups coexist in a in a backcountry environment? You've got hikers, you've got equestrians, and and you've got cyclists in that area. Is there cohesion? Uh, can they coexist together? Absolutely. We're firm, firm believers um, that they can coexist. And actually, we do see them coexist in our area. Like I said, there's historically, it's a horse area. We see horses all the time on the trails. Of course, there's mountain biking has really grown in BC and in our area in particular. So there's lots of mountain bikers in the area, but also hikers. And as a tour operator, we are a multi-use tour operator. So we have guests of all sorts in the mountains. And for us, it's about education and learning the behaviors of the different user groups and how to respect those behaviors. And then at the end of the day, realizing that we're all in the mountains for the same reason generally. And if we can find that common ground and respect that common ground, then the coexistence is absolutely something that works. And so in your opinion, bikes can be sustainable within a backcountry environment. It's a good question. From my opinion and from Tax Adventures opinion, absolutely. In order to make it sustainable, it needs to be managed correctly, and the users need to be educated appropriately as well. Yeah, and, and that that 
perfectly t- segues into my next question, which is what responsibility do, do individual riders have uh, to that sustainability piece? Yeah, I think, you know, I think ultimately it's up to mountain bikers to show the respect and the care for the land that is due in order for us to continue to ride in the wilderness. And we are really approaching it from kind of a three-tiered sustainability system right now. And and so there's kind of, there's environmental sustainability, there's behavioral responsibility, and then cultural responsibility. And as we continue to help educate our community and our media and our land managers about what that looks like, we'll really be going at it from those three different areas. I'm certainly happy to expand on what each of those areas entails for us. Totally. Yeah, I would love for you to expand on, on each of those areas. You know, I think there's a lot of focus put on sustainability from a trails point of view, but, yeah. but that's only one piece of it. There's there's so much more. And, and uh, yeah, if you could expand on that, that would be wonderful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For us, it's, I think that, just, you know, as we talked about earlier, the South Chakotan really is a unique area and it offers such a wide variety of activity and quite a unique culture, which has enabled us to come about it in kind of this three-tiered system. So environmental sustainability is one area that we're asking folks to really think about. And that's, I think, what many folks come to on their own as the assumed responsibility, which is things like protecting the flora and fauna, uh, respecting um, or staying out of fragile environments in the alpine, being aware if you're traveling through certain animals, breeding grounds, or perhaps foraging grounds that time of year. Things like that are what we would consider um, environmental sustainability. And again, I think those are the ones that pop to people's heads right away. The behavioral sustainability, I think, is the next thing that many folks think about, and that is ways that we behave on our bikes that really impact where we are. So, you know, for us, it's staying on the trail, use the trail, it's there. And if we can all ride on the same trail, we'll protect the rest of the land. Ride, don't slide, which is, you know, a well-known phrase these days. Also behavioral is to ride slow, ride at a speed where you can actually enjoy what's around you, where you can give the animals some time to respond to you coming down the trail, um, but also giving uh, the time for other users to respond to you and hear you. Um, Respecting other uh, trail users, the multi-use piece, um, and that's a behavioral piece for us as well. And then the cultural piece is a big one for us, considering that we are on shared territory. All of our tours take place on uh, Statlium territory. And the idea of every person in that area needs to know that and be respectful of the area because it is their home and they have um, welcomed us into their home, which uh, we're very grateful for. And uh, we need to show respect for that. Uh, There's also the cultural component of media, (laughs) how media is um, pushing mountain biking, what they're showcasing of mountain biking, um, what they're creating as kind of the accepted culture of, of mountain biking. There's also the peer pressure uh, piece of culture. So what are, you know, how are people responding to social media posts? How are we encouraging fellow riders to behave in the backcountry? What does that peer pressure culture look like? And then I'd say, you know, the big final one, which is a fairly holistic view of it all, is the idea of how do we change our mentality or how do we help grow a culture that accepts the holistic value of being in the backcountry in the wilderness? And how do we get to that place of that mentality where, you know, we're riding there for the whole experience, not just for the downhill experience. So that change in that, that idea of what we're going into the backcountry for. So those are, those are for us, those are kind of the environmental behavior and cultural sustainability topics. And how does that get relayed to your mountain bike guests? 
So as an operator, it's, it's something that we take really seriously and that we do have responsibility to educate our guests on sustainable practices while in South Chilcotin and in the backcountry in general. So we take it as a very serious job of ours. We have a couple different ways that it is shared. One of them is when folks sign up for an adventure right away, as soon as they're booked on, they get an email that includes uh, a document explaining what sustainable riding looks like for us and how we're, they're expected to behave while they're back there. There's also some places on our website where folks, once, whether they're perusing or once they've committed to a trip, can go to learn things such as how to be bear aware and bear safe. Um, we've also produced and will continue to produce more material on sustainable riding practices. So those are all available on our website. And then once our guests do arrive, as soon as they come to our activity desk, there are there's some visual information posted in our office that helps deliver that information. And then as well, if folks are going in on a charter flight with us into the wilderness, or if they're going in with a guided group, it's the pilot's responsibility as well as the guide's responsibility to share all of these practices um, and what that looks like and to role model them as well when they're in there. And then also every time someone stops at one of our camps, overnights at a camp, there'll be some cultural information on the Statlium Nation, as well as, again, going over what the behavioral and environmental sustainability practices look like. What's important for mountain biking going forward? One thing that is really important for us right now is, is the idea of collaboration. And I feel like as mountain biking has really grown in BC to become a very strong driver of tourism. And as that's happened, there's it's gotten all of this attention. And so there's really this opportunity and this need for all of these different sectors to come together in order to collaborate in order to keep mountain biking sustainable, I think, for BC. And, you know, I just hope, and I think Tax Adventures hopes to be a driver in this and creating collaborative efforts between folks, including the riding community, tour operators, land managers, and media. And if we can really get that collaborative effort going, I think we'll have a higher chance of keeping mountain biking sustainable in BC. I should add in there as well that uh, that collaborative effort also has to include the First Nations. There's this big question, I think, and I think it's just beginning to bubble up as far as, okay, who's going to be the driving force in getting this education that's necessary to get out in order for riding to be sustainable? And who's going to fund all of this? And really, we would love to see it be shared by the riding community, the operators, the land managers, and the media. And it's some of that funding has to come from the top down as well. And so as a tour operator, we are doing our best to really create some educational piece and sink some funding into uh, sustainability efforts such as trail work. We maintain all of our vast network of trails. We're also creating this video series of, of sustainable riding. So some of it's got to come from the bottom up, but some of it's got to come from the top down. And so folks like Destination BC or even some of our land managers, seeing those guys come on board to help support some of the advocacy, I think is really critical for long-term um, success here. Well, Nahid, thank you t so much for uh, taking the time to chat with me. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. If you're interested in learning more about Tayak's adventures, you can find some links in the show notes. You can also find a link to the video that you heard a clip from at the beginning of my discussion with Nahid. The video is called Respect, a call to action for sustainable mountain biking. And I'd like to thank Mike Gamble from Switchback Entertainment for allowing me to use that audio. A big theme, not only in the film, but in my conversation with Nahid, 
And I think something that should always be front and center in the minds of trail advocates is respect. Respect for the environment, absolutely. But also respect for each other. And that needs to go both ways. And it may sound like I'm calling out other user groups, but when I think about respect, I'm referring to mountain bikers most of all. All too often, we're judged by our worst members. And if that's the case, then as advocates, we need to go above and beyond what is expected of us. And we may not be able to change the culture of mountain biking overnight, but we can certainly start that process today. And modeling not only good behavior, but exceptional behavior is key if we're going to shift the narrative. Another key term that Nahid mentioned that I wanted to highlight was managed correctly. And I think this is key. Sustainability requires work and maintenance. And this is something that mountain bikers are great at. And that is why mountain biking is sustainable. I've got a lot of feedback from the last episode and the entire wilderness series. And there's lots of comments that have been posted on the Facebook link as well as the blog post. But I wanted to welcome Bruce Alt to the show. Bruce was the vice president of government relations at IMBA. He was also one of the founding members of the Central Arkansas Trail Alliance in Little Rock. Bruce is going to shed some light on national monuments. It's a land designation that came up during my discussion with Eric Melson of IMBA. And Bruce is going to take us into that topic a little bit more. Hi, Bruce. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Brent. Delighted to be with you. So I want to dive right into it. What are national monuments? Well, national monuments are federal lands that are protected due to objects of historical, cultural, or scientific interest. And they vary from national parks that are protected due to scenic, recreational, or educational values. National monuments are significantly less recognizable the national parks, in part because they range from buildings to fossil beds, reefs, ruins, railroads, statues, volcanoes, forests, or even natural bridges. The more popular national monuments include the Statue of Liberty in New York, Fort Sumter in South Carolina, World War II Valor in the Pacific, Muir Woods, Mount Rushmore, and Devil's Tower in Wyoming. Now, interestingly, the Grand Canyon Grand Teton, Arches, Joshua Tree, and Olympic National Parks were first designated as national monuments, and then they were later redesignated as national parks by Congress. And is there mountain biking in national monuments? Are you allowed to mountain bike in national monuments? Well, first, let me say that mountain bike advocates must clearly understand that the process for designating a national monument is very political. In contrast, the process for designating a wilderness area is far more complicated, time-consuming, and is intensely political. So importantly for mountain biking, some public and commercial activities can be permitted to continue after monuments are established. The key word here is continue, and that means that they have to be ongoing in the landscape prior to the designation. These activities are, are really quite varied and they may surprise you. They include oil and gas leases, hunting and fishing, rafting and boating, camping, backpacking, mountain biking, hiking, and even riding motorized vehicles on designated routes. National monument designations are unique in that they can be tailored, allowing for the maintenance of traditional culture uses in particular areas. So, is mountain biking allowed in national monuments? And the short policy answer is, it depends. 
again, for strategic emphasis, for mountain biking to continue on trails on public lands that are designated, mountain bikers must actively engage in proposals before the designation actually occurs. The Antiquities Act, like any tool in the toolbox of a participatory democratic republic, only works when the citizens participate. So allowing mountain biking in national monuments first depends on if mountain bike trails existed and were being ridden in the target landscape before the designation. If that's the case, then it really depends on the sufficiency of the citizen or mountain bike community's lobbying effort to have mountain biking included in the proclamation, followed by the sufficiency of the mountain bike community's active participation and ultimate success in being included in the management plan. So it's entirely possible to have physical precedent, that is active mountain bike trails in the target landscape and be successful in being included in the proclamation only to lose access to trails in the development of the management plan. So right now as it stands, are there national monuments out there that do currently allow mountain biking? Very few. Now, uh, actually, there's only two with established management plans that allow mountain biking on trails. There are others that allow mountain biking on dirt roads. There are four where the management plans are currently under development, but mountain biking was in the landscape and is in the proclamation. And interestingly, those are the most recent four. Uh, the Katahdin Woods and Waters in Maine, the Berryessa Snow Mountain in California, San Gabriel Mountains in California, and Canyons of the Ancients in Colorado. Could national monuments be a solution or an alternative for mountain bikers instead of uh, a wilderness area being designated? The short answer is yes, but establishing mountain biking in a national monument requires a very heavy lift and it's a long shot at best. However, we know that there's absolutely no mountain biking allowed in a wilderness area. So there's, there's a chance. <laughs> it's, it might be a better option, but, uh, but still sounds like a, a, a bit of a slog uh, to get there. Well, let me tell you why. Uh, and this is really the key. The act itself, the Antiquities Act that authorizes the president to establish national monuments without the consent of Congress does not necessarily preserve recreational activities. Remember, its key emphasis is on protecting objects of historical, cultural, scientific interest, not outdoor recreation. So again, to allow mountain biking and national monuments, those things, three things have to happen. We have to have the power of precedence. We have to have mountain biking included in the proclamation. And absolutely, we have to have mountain biking and trails open throughout the management plan. So if mountain biking's in the proclamation, but not in the management plan, the trails will close. All three requirements have to be met. So that's gonna require you know, an engaged organization being at the table very early in this process. 
Well, that's the absolute key for citizen advocates and mountain bikers. Let's go back to number two, where I talked about lobbying that is essential for mountain biking to be included in the presidential proclamation. That effort has to be directed toward the CEQ, or the Council on Environmental Quality. The CEQ is a division of the executive office of the president. And how much lobbying is required is always difficult to assess. That's the proverbial $64,000 question. But certainly it requires building a very large coalition of local support among the public, business and political leaders, and then actively working to minimize the political power of any opposition. It also requires a very large number of individual citizen mountain bikers to actively voice their support, continued access to the trails. And that was a very strategic problem in the 2015 designation of the White Clouds Wilderness in Idaho rather than as a national monument. So President Trump has has ordered the Interior Department review of national monuments. And what does that mean? Well, President Trump directed an order to the Interior Department back in April, and he wanted the department to review every national monument designation larger than 100,000 acres protected since 1996. Uh, Secretary of Interior Ryan Zinke has not publicly released his final report, but a leaked version was allegedly obtained by the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. So reportedly, the Secretary's 19-page report was delivered to the White House back on August 24th. But it's important to keep in mind that all the news reports, all the speculation, all the conjecture since then have been based on this leaked copy, which may or may not be the secretary's final recommendation to the president. Environmentalists fear that the president's goal is to allow more fossil fuel development, mining, logging, livestock grazing on these public lands. However, it's useful to remember that these resource uses were properly permitted under current law and federal land management agency management plans prior to the national monument designation. Some monuments, such as the Bears Ears in Utah, have fueled social and political controversy, but many have not. Again, it's important to remember that only existing federal public lands, not state or private property, can generally be considered monument status, although there are exceptions. So how can the president do this? I think when we think of, of protected areas, we, we think of them as being protected. And wilderness is a, a great example of that. When, when Congress designates wilderness, it is locked, it is protected. But are national monuments like this this flaky? Is there the opportunity for the president to just go in and, and change some things around, shrink them a little bit? Concerns about protecting mostly prehistoric Indian ruins and artifacts, collectively termed antiquities, from looting and collecting, also termed pot hunting on Western federal lands during the late 1800s, prompted the legislation. The purpose was to allow the president to quickly preserve public land without waiting for legislation to pass through an unconcerned Congress. In other words, protecting antiquities if Congress either failed or took too long to act. The ultimate goal was to protect all historic and prehistoric sites on U.S. federal lands. So Congress passed the Antiquities Act and President Theodore Roosevelt signed it into law in 1906, over 110 years ago. This gives the president the authority to create national monuments, which typically take years of study, collaboration, and review to ensure that they contain historic landmarks, historic and prehistoric structures, 
or other objects of historic or scientific interest. What, what's, what's really remarkable, though, is the law is very unique in that it allows the president to proclaim parts of the public domain protected by passing Congress entirely. Now, arguably, this authority is checked by public opinion and Congress' power to abolish or modify a national monument, although this power is being debated right now. If President Trump actually reduces the size of an existing monument or abolishes one entirely, it will most certainly be subject to a court challenge. Why should mountain bikers bother with national monuments? Well, certainly this is a very valid question. There are absolutely no guarantees that current trail access in a target landscape will continue. And it certainly won't be created if active trails aren't in that landscape already. A seasoned executive and active mountain biking friend of mine has reminded me several times during my policy work that mountain bikers are generally mothers and fathers with jobs to do, families to raise and care for, children's activities to support, and then trails to ride and beer to drink, which leaves precious little energy, time, and resources for mountain bike advocacy. So each rider or organization has to prioritize all these demands and ultimately answer the question of their action on any specific mountain bike policy access issue. So to summarize, mountain biking and national monuments is currently extremely limited. If trails are currently being ridden in a designated landscape, it's a very heavy policy lift that requires a great deal of significant citizen input. And ultimately, it's a real long shot to keep those trails open in the future. Well, Bruce, I want to thank you for taking the time to, to chat with me. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I hope this has been helpful for your listeners. Absolutely. I think so. There's no denying that Bruce is a wealth of information, and I always walk away from our conversations with a a different perspective. Bruce will be joining us for another episode in the new year to share his elected officials rulebook. And without giving too much away, it's started to kind of shift how I not only view my local trail access, but it's starting to shift my opinion of bikes in U.S. wilderness. And when an organization like the Sustainable Trails Coalition can get a bill introduced in Congress, then the next thing that we're looking for is the majority support of that bill from Congress. And as mountain bikers, we tend to have a bit of a myopic view. We like mountain bike trails. This bill means more mountain bike trails. So why doesn't it have a chance to pass? In our minds, it seems like a great bill. It seems like a perfect pass. But the question that needs to be asked and should always be asked when dealing with elected officials is, what good does this do for the elected official supporting it? And if it doesn't contribute to their goals, then they're not going to support it. And more importantly, if it takes away from some of their goals or upsets their base, their voting base, then they're not going to support the bill. And you might be able to better understand that question after Bruce shares his elected officials rulebook. So look out for that episode. Next episode, we'll be hearing from Mark Schmidt of Parks Canada and how they've embraced mountain biking in the national parks all over Canada. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. You can send me an email or audio file to frontlinesmtb at gmail.com. 
And don't forget to support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes as well as links to Tyak's adventure and the respect video. You can also support the show through the Frontlines Book Club. The first book recommendation came from Christine Reed of the North Shore Mountain Bike Association, and it's Robert Moore's On Trail and Exploration. Now, if you purchase the book through the Frontlines website, Amazon will provide financial support for the podcast. There's a link in the show notes for that. And next episode, I'll be announcing the second book of the Frontlines Book Club, which has been recommended by Bruce Alt. Music is once again provided by Lee Rosevere, production notes by Jennifer Pride. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening and happy trails.